One afternoon in the 1970s, when we were living in Bangladesh, the settee I was sitting on tipped unexpectedly. I looked round to see if it was my young son trying to push it, but he wasn't there. And then it tipped again, and the, the windows and the doors started to rattle. It was an earth tremor. It wasn't a very strong one. It's the only time I've ever experienced one. I don't know if you have. It was very disconcerting, even though it was a mild tremor and did no damage. I'd always thought of the ground as solid and immovable, but that day it moved. Can you hear me, Mavis? Can you hear me, Mavis? Yes. Yeah. Good. So, look at this cartoon. Uh, it says the CEO. I think we could substitute the vicar. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps you feel rather like the melting snowman, the change as threatening and swallowing you up. It's all very well embracing it, but actually we can't avoid change. It is part of life, but most of us don't like it very much. We're naturally disinclined to it. But we should be ready for it, whether it's good or bad. And sometimes we feel that the pace of change is excuse me, <coughs> that the pace of change is increasing and everything's just getting faster and faster and we feel dizzy and the merry-go-round doesn't stop for us. The news this last week has been one thing after another and it's been unsettling and perhaps even frightening. So how do we cope with it? Well, I think Philemon may have felt rather dizzy after he read Paul's letter. On the surface, it's a gentle appeal to Philemon to be kind and to welcome a new believer. But the implications of what Paul is asking would have felt like an earthquake. The ground would have moved under Philemon's feet. His world was shifting. We need to know a bit of background. First of all, Philemon seems to have been a wealthy landowner. He was farming an estate near the town of Colossae. may have looked a bit like this picture. It was normal in those days for such estates to be run partly by slave workers. Other slaves would help with domestic work. All the things for which we now go to the shops or turn on a machine would have been done by slaves. Laundry, carrying water, cleaning, preparing food from scratch. Imagine if you had to cook the chicken that was running around the garden. Yourself. <laughs> when we think of slavery, we're apt to think of the slave trade, where people were treated in absolutely horrendous ways, um, being taken from Africa to be sold in America. Slaves in the Roman Empire probably fared somewhat better. We have to remember there was no social security. A slave was at least sure of a roof over his head and food, even when there was no work to be had. And paid workers could not be sure of that. So in some ways, slaves were slightly better off. But nonetheless, it was a hard life. They were not legally counted as people, they belonged completely to their owners, and most of them died young. 
Some slave owners surely realised that a slave who was treated well would give better service than one who was treated badly. And many slaves were from tribes that the Romans had conquered. Some were educated men of ability and they might have very responsible positions of trust. They might even be able to gain their freedom. But others were obliged to do menial tasks. They may have worked under harsh masters. We read Paul urging Christian masters to treat their slaves fairly because they know they've got a master in heaven. And he urges slaves to be obedient as a testimony to Christ. Paul may not have met Philemon because we know he didn't go to Colossae, which is where Philemon lived. The church there was founded by one of Paul's team, Epaphras or Epaphras, don't know. He'd planted a church there. Just at this time, Epaphras was in prison with Paul. That's in verse 23. And Archippus, who's mentioned in verse 2, had also spent a lot of time with Paul. It seems from his inclusion in this letter that Archippus was probably Philemon's son. So Paul knew all about Philemon and describes him as our dear co-worker. The letter's warm in tone, but yet there are no personal memories mentioned. And the reason for writing the letter is the situation of this runaway slave, Onesimus. We don't know why he ran away. Perhaps he was homesick. Perhaps he'd been punished for some misdemeanour. If a slave ran away, they could be caught and returned and punished in any way the master chose. They might be beaten or branded. They might be forced to do extra degrading work or extra dangerous work. They could even be put to death. Onesimus had managed to run away as far as Rome and he probably hoped that he could hide there in the Roman underclasses. But God had other plans. Somehow Onesimus met Paul. Paul was under house arrest, so perhaps Onesimus got work in that household. And Paul was soon telling him about Jesus, and Onesimus became a Christian. And Paul describes him as my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's useful to you and to me. And apparently the name Onesimus means useful, so Paul's making a play on his name. Paul obviously feels deep affection for Onesimus. He's very concerned about his future. He was tempted to keep Onesimus with him, yet he feels he must send him back to his master. Philemon has been wronged. The wrong ought to be put right. It would be dishonest to say nothing. But how could Paul think to send him back as a slave to be punished, perhaps branded or even killed? Onesimus is one of God's children now. It's unthinkable that one Christian would harm another. We're all members of God's family. God's shown mercy to us. We'd wronged him more than a slave ever wrongs his master. And so we're in no position to call others to account. We're completely beholden to God's mercy and we're commanded to forgive one another 
as God has forgiven us. But it's a delicate matter, and you can feel Paul's hesitation about it. It's awkward. (coughs) How can he intervene between a runaway slave and his master? Well, the slave was the property of the owner. He'd got no rights. And Paul doesn't want to pull rank and tell Philemon what to do. And yet, he doesn't want to send Onesimus back without trying to secure a better life for him, perhaps even his freedom. So I think Paul is treading very carefully. He knows an appeal will serve better than a command. And he reminds Philemon that Onesimus is now a Christian. He's now a brother in Christ. Onesimus could serve as Philemon's representative and serve Paul in prison, as Philemon would himself if he had the chance. But he goes further. In verse 17, If you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. How would Paul be welcomed in Philemon's home? He would be an honoured guest, surely. He'd be given the best bedroom. Nothing would be too much trouble. And it would be such a privilege to have him and his company. But put a runaway slave in the best guest room? Perish the thought. So I sense that dizziness that Philemon must have felt. I think he might have needed to sit down for a bit. And I'm sure he would have reread the letter several times to be sure he'd got it right. Yes, Onesimus had been found. And he's a Christian now. Paul promised to repay anything he owed. After all, Philemon himself would not know Christ if it was not for Paul's work. And now Paul's asking for a personal favour. But just imagine what Philemon might have thought. What will the other slaves think? Perhaps they'll all run away. Perhaps they'll rise in revolt because it's so unfair. Will they go on serving as slaves if I treat this runaway slave as an honoured guest? Am I supposed to set all my guests, my slaves free? How on earth would we manage? I couldn't do all the work myself, not even if my wife and my family pitched in. Could I run the farm with just hired workers? The trouble is I can't be sure of finding them when they're needed and they don't know how anything works. I think we'd be bankrupt in no time. It would cost me a lot and we'd lose all our property and our wealth and then everything would stop. I'd lose my position in society. No one would have me in their home. If I lose the estate, I won't be able to help the church anymore either. In fact, they'd probably have to support us. And what about Archippus? I always wanted him to inherit. You can imagine the seismic shift opening up, the feeling of the earth moving. The Roman world depended on slaves. It couldn't function without them. It's reckoned that 30 to 40% of the population of Italy were slaves. That's high though there were probably a slightly smaller proportion around Colossi. They did all the menial jobs at home, on the farms and in the cities. 
If you gave them all freedom, then nothing would work anymore. It would be rather akin to shutting down the electricity for us. Yet surely Paul's appeal for Onesimus is perfectly logical. We are all forgiven sinners. We're all levelled at the cross. God had changed Onesimus and made that useless slave a useful worker for Christ. And now he wants Philemon to change too. That's why we need to count the cost of following Christ, as our reading from Luke reminded us. I used to find it rather disturbing that the Bible seemed not to condemn slavery. You wondered why Paul and other writers didn't insist that all men are equal and therefore slavery must stop. I think they may have worked out that any change was going to be slow, but perhaps they realised it was the inevitable result of the gospel. As individuals are transformed by Christ and brought into relationships of equality with one another, they would be brothers and sisters in God's family. And everywhere where the gospel has been rightly preached and understood, social wrongs do get put right. Now I wonder if you've had any dizzy moments recently. I'm not talking about being physically dizzy, I hope you haven't had those but spiritually and mentally. Perhaps a change looms that you weren't expecting and the ground seems to move. Well, I've had a few recently. One was when I watched a documentary about the Mediterranean and they showed from the air, and it's actually visible from space, a vast white area of the south of Spain. The white is plastic used like greenhouses. There are about 50,000 football pitches worth covered with white plastic. It's been dubbed Costa del Polythene, and it's the market garden of Europe, and that accounts for all the cheap fruit and vegetables we've been enjoying. The trouble is, it depends on the exploitation of migrant workers. Many are paid less than half the living wage and live in atrocious conditions and the plastic sheeting goes into landfill. Well, ignorance was bliss, but now I know, I really don't know what I'm going to do about it. Another earth-moving moment was seeing those fires in the Amazon forest this summer. I was absolutely astonished to see the extent of them. And that's supplying a large amount of our oxygen, or the forest was before it was burnt. So we don't quite know what effect this will have on our planet. Global warming and climate change already seem to be here, as we saw with Hurricane Dorian that has wrecked the Bahamas this last week. These things are really scary. And our current political scene is completely bizarre, with much uncertainty ahead of us. Sometimes I just feel glad I'm getting older. I've had my life before the world descends into total chaos. How will we ride through such troubled times? Like Philemon, we've put our trust in Christ. He's the cornerstone and the rock. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, 
today and forever. So I suggest to you that we need to recall God's providence, God's promises and God's purposes. God's providence, that's an old-fashioned word for an old-fashioned truth. But nothing's changed, it's still true. It means that God is in control, he orders things as he wills. He intervenes in human affairs, just like he arranged for Onesimus to cross paths with Paul, who knew all about his master. Now, in the city of Rome, what was the chances of that? It was a God incidence, because God is in control. He had a plan for Onesimus. There was later a bishop of Ephesus whose name was Onesimus. It's the right area, and it's about the right time to fit. And that bishop Onesimus was the one who gathered Paul's letters together, which we now have in our Bible. If it was the same person, it seems that Philemon must have set him free. So God had a purpose for Onesimus. When you have panicky moments, which I think we probably all do at times, we need to stand back, take some deep breaths. Remember that God is sovereign. The Bible keeps telling us, the Lord reigns. Nothing takes him by surprise. Secondly, God's promises. He promises to be with us always, even to the end of the age. And I love these verses from Isaiah. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame will not consume you. There are so many promises to give us courage in tough times. And I'd like to commend the Psalms to you. They were written in tough times a long time ago, but they read so up to date they could have been written for us. And thirdly, God's purposes. God is working his purposes out. One day, every knee shall bow at the name of Jesus. Dark times are not a sign that he's abandoned us. They may be his way of calling people back to himself, and we should certainly pray for that. And through it all, God's calling together his new people, people who were once useless, as Onesimus was, but are now useful and valued and loved. We're part of God's forever family, which he's gathering out of every nation, people, language and tribe. It will be complete when Jesus comes back. So as the earth shifts and changes around us, it's perhaps also a sign that the end is not far away. Maybe Jesus will come sooner than we thought. I'd like to finish with Psalm 46. I'd like to read the whole thing, but I'll just stop at the first verse. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way.